Anta Njai. I'm a junior political science major, double minoring in economics and journalism from Chicago, Illinois at Spelman College, and I'm the only young lady in Dr. Rice's Black Men, Black Boys in Psychology and Media course. My name is Brian Wingate. I am a junior biology major from Charleston, South Carolina, and I took this class so I wouldn't drown in biology all semester. My name is Aaron Llewellyn, a senior sociology major, journalism minor from Wichita, Kansas, and I took this course uh, to gain a better view of the media from the individual perspective. Collectively, we're the Other Two-Fifths podcast. And welcome. So in Norman Coombs, The Black Experience in America, The Immigrant Heritage of America, uh, he says, slave masters gave a great deal of attention to the education and training of the ideal slave. At every point, this education was built on the belief in white superiority and black inferiority. Besides teaching the slave to despise his own history and culture, the master strove to inculcate his own value system into the African's outlook. The white man's belief in the African's inferiority paralleled African self-hate. So I think if we're going to have a conversation about uh, is it problematic to refer to marginalized communities as uh, pathological, we have to look at the effects of slavery and how that affected African-American people and how it still affects African-American people today. And I completely agree. I think when we're engaging the African-American experience here in America, we immediately have to turn to a timeline and then gauge what our experiences have been our experiences have been over the years as it pertains to path, um, to being pathological and how pathology has informed the black experience per your quote Aaron um, or even just per what we see walking down the streets of our own neighborhoods when we leave our neighborhoods and we see what blackness looks like in other areas of this country and of the world we find that there is the master narrative in which we live by, and then there is the counter narrative in which we've had to ultimately create over time to make our presence in certain spaces a lot more comfortable. We know our master narrative to be the narrative in which our slave masters wrote for us, back to the quote in which you mentioned, Aaron. Um, but we know our counter narrative to be what we've chosen to take from ourselves um, what we've chosen to take about ourselves and rewrite ourselves. And because we have this kind of sense or this idea, it becomes essential when this narrative that we've wrote for ourselves is one of the only things about ourselves that we're able to unapologetically own. So much so that we forget the fact that the narrative that we've been force-fed about ourselves that we're dying and vying so hard to rewrite and make right isn't true at all. Um, and that the narrative that we've chosen to write, um, to juxtapose against what society thinks that we are, 
is who we truly are at our core. It's just that it's impossible to find the truth in that when the media spins a completely different story to you on a day-to-day. I think it's important that we look at that juxtaposition that you mentioned. I believe that many times when we're trying to uh, promote these counter-narratives, that we forget about the truths that exist in a master narrative. Um, Again, black people don't exist in monolith, whether that's what we see as positive or negative. You know, like, I get to be a whole person. Just because I'm not zip-coon, you know, I'm not zip-coon. I don't just dance around and use big words and, you know, like, I'm a whole person. Like, I'm entitled to be a whole person. And I believe that's the important part, um, that we don't just say, oh, well, no, stereotypes are wrong. You know, stereotypes, like, they hold no truths about us. You know, like, we get to be that person that exists in that stereotype, but we also get to be the person that exists in the counter. We get to be whole, and I think wholeness should be our focus. And so I think that's why uh, one of my favorite TV shows is is so important, uh, Power. I'll use that as an example. So we have the, the main character, the protagonist of the storyline, James St. Patrick, who's also known as Ghost, who is a drug dealer, uh, but he also runs a nightclub where he launders his money. Uh, even though he is a drug dealer, he fits that stereotype of being a drug dealer and being a criminal, a thug, uh, what have you. Um, he still is a family man. He has three children. Uh, he has a wife at home who he loves dearly, uh, but he's caught in between two worlds. Uh, he, he wants to get out of the game, but he all, and he all wants to find more lucrative ways uh, to make money and support his family, uh, but he still has that need in order to, to do that until he can get there um, and be involved in kind of these negative um, life aspects, uh, if you will. And so I think it's important that we have those images that juxtapose one another um, that say, you know, I, even though I do fit the stereotype, I do fit the stereotypical mold, I also have other layers to me uh, that, that are seen, um, even if they, they don't fit that master narrative as well. Okay, so let's get to some solutions here. I believe that a good solution will be diversity. Uh, a problem that we've been having with media has been that there have been so few uh, there have been so few like characters that are black or so few stories of black people in media at large and the ones that we've seen have been so negative that's why their toll has been so great I believe that diversity is important diversity in our portrayal is important I feel like as a black person I should be able to see myself as a hero and a villain I believe that us trying to force these counter narratives are also just as problematic. They cause just as large of a problem in our real life. So diversifying our portrayals has to be a focus for ours in the future. Uh, and I think that in order to diversify those portrayals, we, we can't have people who aspire to be in front of the camera. We have to have people who aspire to be behind the camera and work behind the scenes. We have to have people who want to become the executive producers of television shows. We have to have people who want to produce these stories, want to produce these narratives, um, because the media is run by the top 1% of the wealthiest white people in the country. And so in order to be able to create the change that we want to see in the media, um, we can't, there has to be more of an aspiration to, like I said, be behind the scenes and work behind the scenes in order to create those narratives where we can get to a point where we can offer more roles uh, that are diverse and don't fit those stereotypical molds. And I agree with you both. I think that taking into consideration both of your opinions, that it 
a lose the overarching goal within be to be more intentional as it pertains to media, to um, move away from just being a spectator um, and actually analyzing what it is, what you listen to or what you watch on a day to day does to you as a human. I think one of the most profound things that Dr. Rice mentioned in class this semester was the idea of a daily diet. As we talked about the Netflix series that we did or did not watch and some of the options or some of the choices that our classmates gave out, you would have assumed that he watched them in his spare time as well, just off of the strength that the content of the show is similar to the content that we cover in class, whether it be through literature or class dialogues or conversations spearheaded by him himself. And he interrogated the idea that because something was similar to what you read and what you read and what you study is a good enough reason to literally indulge in it every day. Um, even beyond that, is something being entertaining a strong enough reason to once again delve in it and, and bathe in it. July 19th was the day I found out I was black. Like, this whole, my whole entire life, my mom kept telling me, you're white, you're white. I never believed her because I knew I was black, but July 19th, I did some history. I went on Ancestry.com. The name of this tune is Mississippi Goddamn. I mean every word of it. Alabama's got me so upset. Tennessee made me lose my rest. And everybody knows about Mississippi Goddamn. I just want to introduce this final segment by saying, America Goddamn. I think we're in a very interesting place right now. The master's tools have ended us in a place that's quite insidious. We don't recognize black culture, and that affects the way that we attach ourselves to blackness. Racialized narratives are narratives about races separate from your own that become so ingrained in an individual's mind that they shape how one interacts with them. It shapes how one chooses to define them and how one chooses to place them in this social atmosphere where hierarchy reigns supreme. Um, in the case of Woe Vicky and her ultimate admiration of black womanhood, but her innate feeling that she could own black womanhood, I feel derives from racialized narratives, the false racialized narrative that she has received of being a black woman and how she thinks it's so flimsy. It's flimsy enough for her to just reach out, grab a hold of, and pocket as her own. When someone can willingly and freely and confidently do that um, on via the social mediums that she has, um, we have to put into question how we've chosen to define people um, and the spaces in which we've chosen to prioritize their definitions. I think when speaking of woe is Vicky, you ended up in a very interesting place when you mentioned ownership. Woe is Vicky is not saying that, oh, I'm a black girl. And by me being black girl, that means that I'm not a white girl. 
she's saying by merit of me being a white girl I own your blackness as well so I don't have to sidestep my whiteness in order to procure it she's not promising to give up any privileges associated with being white she's just saying me being white means that I own your black ass too and if I want to act like you I will and that's my right to do so but I'm not exactly here to talk about why she feels so entitled to do that I'm more so interested in our reaction to her doing that. Why do we within our community affirm her doing this? A simple answer is that we don't realize that she's doing anything wrong. We don't recognize what our culture is. So much of the black experience is us sidestepping our blackness in order to chase humanity and being seen as human, to prove our humanity rather. The great paradox is what we see as humanity is actually whiteness. We step so far outside of blackness that we don't recognize what black culture is. In fact, we don't recognize black culture until white people steal it from us, steps on it, and sells it back to us. Whiteness is built on the fact that we as black people know that they own our culture. The foundation of whiteness is being comfortable in that ownership. And so this is why white people hate being called racist because it suggests that they have to be held accountable for the wrongdoing of their ancestors. And they would rather profit quietly from those said wrongdoings as opposed, rather than to admit that they've actually done wrong or that their ancestors have done wrong. So I think that in the case with uh, people like Woe Vicky and others like her, uh, black people have given access to uh, white people and they've in turn uh, been able to gain insight to our culture uh, through this metaphoric idea of inviting them to the barbecue. And so uh, the way that we do that is that we've given them access for being mediocre or uh, doing things that they should be expected to, expected to do and patting them on the back for uh, those things that we see as mediocre. So now that we've discussed some of the problems that we have or that black people experience within cultural identity, what are some of the solutions that we can offer in order to fix this problem that we're experiencing? Our priority in this moment definitely has to be education. You know, many times that we are faced with these tropes, we don't realize that something wrong happened. You know, because the master narrative tells us that this ownership is proper, it's where it belongs. We have to realize that something wrong happened. We have to know how to assess these situations and we have to know how to engage in conversation to move past it. And I think that when we talk about education, it sounds like a simple solution, but it's something that's absolutely necessary. Um, and I think that's why HBCUs are so important and these, these sacred spaces are so important is because we can be our true unadulterated black selves here in these spaces. Uh, we're, we're given the, the authority or we're given the, uh, the, the space to be able to, to be black and, and truly celebrate, celebrate being black. And so, like I said, I think that's why HBCU spaces are, are so sacred, um, because it gives us the opportunity to do that. Well, we thank you for tuning in to the Other Two-Fifths podcast presented by Dr. David Wall Rice's Black Men, Black Boys, and the Psychology of the Modern Media course here at Morehouse College. And uh, like Harriet Tubman, we out.
Gotta ask me why she was so fit though. I think you found it, right?